Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. You know, I, I always wanted to ask this question. How come America can print and borrow unlimited sums of money? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that? Uh, right now there is talk about uh, the American government doling out so-called stimulus checks. This would be the second time during this uh, so-called pandemic, right? Um, but American government is already, what is it? I don't know, close to $30 million. I mean, sorry, <laughs> we wish it were a million. Close to $30 trillion, trillion. That's with 12 zeros. In other words, this number, 20 or 30 trillion, is two or three times 10 to the power of 13. 12 for the trillion and one for the zero in the 20 or the 30, right? So America is... Uh, in debt for more money that <clears throat> exists on planet Earth. Nevertheless, it can supposedly make more money uh, and or borrow more money. And it is substantially the only country in the world that can do that. I mean, all the other countries in the world live within certain fiscal constraints you know you know like countries like japan or israel or even china or russia or india you name it um you know there is only so much money that there is and if they start uh spending a lot more than they have and uh, get themselves in debt well then they can start printing their own currency sure because they're sovereign countries but that would typically mean that their currency is devalued and they get into an inflationary cycle and, uh, and then they have to raise interest rates and, and it's a, it, it hurts their economy, it hurts their own people. And um, you basically have a situation where that becomes untenable. Their credit rating drops, as recently happened in, in Canada, with its government being uh, spending money like, it, like they think they're America maybe. Uh, then get, they're getting, uh, they used to have a balanced budget uh, under Harper now and then Trudeau. Canada is running a large deficits and one of the, um, you know, credit rating bureaus, I for, forget which, maybe Fitch, uh, downgraded it from the uh, best available to just one below. Well, how come uh, this is not happening to America? How come America seems to be able to uh, spend these limitless, infinite amounts of money? And there is an answer to this question. This is not a rhetorical question and it's not a metaphysical question. There is an, uh, an answer to that question. And the answer goes back to the Bretton Woods Conference, which was held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, in late 1945, immediately on the, in, in, in the immediate aftermath of Second World War. Um, and, you know, it was, a, I imagine it was a beautiful fall in New Hampshire, like it always is. I believe it was October or something like that. And after the war was won in both the European and the Pacific, 
theaters. And what basically was agreed upon in that, uh, in that uh, conference, international conference, was that when it comes to financial matters, America was going to be it in the world that the American dollar was is basically the money for the whole world. And the rest of the currencies in the world, be they drachmas or rubles or rupees, would substantially be just uh, derivatives of the dollar. They would be pegged to it in one way or another. And their own governments can decide just how many of them there would be to the one dollar, but substantially they would be pegged to it. Uh, and the reason for that was that uh, in the aftermath again of the Second World War, when the world emerged from that uh, disaster, America was the only country that still had a functioning economy and uh, an industry. In other words, a functioning common economy, which included uh, a, a significant industrial base, agricultural base, and consumer base. So outside of uh, a few small countries like Australia, Canada, um, I know, that's about it, there was really nobody else in the world at that time capable of manufacturing much of anything, of growing much of anything in terms of agricultural produce. Again, maybe outside of some South American countries with bananas and pineapples and some sugarcane. But when it came to staples like wheat, like meat, like dairy, America and maybe Canada, Australia were it. For manufacturing from uh, radios to, to tanks and airplanes and cars and tractors and everything, it was just America, that's it. So America financially, you know, ruled the world. Um, and that situation is, is no longer the same today, uh, we know financially, because today America is still a very important consumer market and a, a less important manufacturing base. I mean, today, if America were to stop manufacturing anything, the world would come up and replace it. America is not the only place in the world where things are manufactured far from it. And if America stopped manufacturing airplanes, tractors, semiconductors, and so on, there's many places in the world where those things are manufactured, and they would just step up production. America is still, however, an important consumer market. But there is something more uh, going on there, and that something is more important. That's where I want to lead this discussion to. America was... Uh, after the Second World War, emerged as the only true global superpower. Sure, uh, soon thereafter, the Soviet Union had a kind of a, a pretender status to uh, superpowerdom, but, but that relied solely on the vast size of its land army, you know, its tanks and infantry and artillery, and it's uh, nuclear weaponry that it started developing very quickly after uh, communists, American communists, leaked the, the designs for the atom bomb to the Soviets. But what the Soviet Union never had, and Russia to this day doesn't have, is a true 
blue water navy with aircraft carriers that can project uh, power, military power across the globe and can build coalitions such as NATO and such as America's, um, I believe it's called, it's called ANZAC or something like that, alliance with, uh, in the South Pacific with Australia and New Zealand. So, um, there, there was really nobody else that could provide military security around the globe. And so, in, in Bretton Woods and in other uh, uh, conferences and other arrangements like that with NATO and with, and with, Austra- and with Australia and New Zealand, the United States made uh, a kind of a deal with the rest of the world. Uh, and the deal was that America would uh, provide global security, would serve as a kind of a, a global policeman, to use a fairly <coughs> trite or cliche phrase, or in any case, a global guarantor of security or a guarantor of, gr- of global security. And in exchange for this, uh, America would get, uh, its currency would get a kind of a, a special place uh, outside of the laws of uh, supply and demand to a large degree. And uh, uh, beyond that, America would also get preferential access to uh, world markets in terms of um, resources uh, like oil and other things uh, and um, also in terms of so in terms of purchasing those resources and in terms of um, exporting selling its manufactured value add goods to the rest of the world now, this contract has been abraded somewhat since uh, in the 70 years that have passed uh, because now because America had uh, willingly opened its own market free of charge to countries like Western Europe and Japan and later perhaps with disastrous consequences also to China and America did that because it wanted to encourage these countries to grow and develop and uh, Perhaps you could say that America now is losing the very important competition for the procurement of rare earth minerals and elements that are that are uh, that play such an important role in uh, electrical motors for electrical vehicles and so on batteries. Uh, so yes, there has been a significant erosion, but that deal still holds substantially the center of it holds and and that center is what provides america and americans with this unheard of prosperity with this ability to manufacture deus ex machina out of nothing you know god out of the machine um uh money right dollars and just do with them as America wishes, whether it's uh, to build border walls or to pay for abortions abroad, depending on who is in the White House, and simply give jobs to Americans or sometimes even just give money to Americans. Well, but so that's what America gets out of it, but what about America's obligations under this deal? I mean, a deal as any 
budding lawyer would know any contract must be quid pro quo. There must be an exchange of valuable goods or services. Well, America certainly got something valuable. And what did it offer in exchange? Well, in exchange it offered, as I just mentioned, to serve as a kind of a guarantor of world security and, and perhaps even more importantly of free trade around the world. And this is something that America has been doing since its very inception, even though until the end of the Second World War it was doing it solely in its own interests as opposed to the interests of the whole, <coughs> the whole world. We know, for example, that uh, the first uh, military engagement that the United States uh, got into uh, almost immediately after it uh, won its uh, revolutionary or independence war against Britain was an expedition to kind of uh, uh, calm down the um, or tamp down the, uh, how should I say, excessive exuberance of pirates uh, Muslim pirates out of uh, uh, based in North Africa in places like uh, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and they were called uh, corsairs, and they would disrupt trade through the Gibraltar Gibraltar Straits and in the into the Mediterranean trade that was important to America because uh, even back then America was very much an ex ex export economy maybe more so then than uh, any time since then because the American market was internal market was very small. So it needed to export its goods like be it tobacco or wool um, or cotton or manufactured goods from uh, the north uh, the northern states uh, and things like uh, whale blubber and so on. So, it needed to go to other countries like France, like Italy, and, and the trade around the, the Mediterranean was very important for America. So they sent an expeditionary force to kind of calm these, you know, to get these corsairs to kind of uh, be a little bit uh, less visible, perhaps. Um, and then after that, America has famously threatened Japan at gunpoint to open its ports to it because it needed places to refuel its uh, steamships, you know, to get coal and water, fresh water on board so that uh, th those ships could uh, uh, sail the Pacific. They didn't have very much range. Uh, was Range was limited by how much coal they could take on board and how much fresh water they could take on, on board to boil in in their in their uh, boilers, uh, salt water obviously cannot be boiled in boilers because it would leave a residue of salt that would corrode the, the machinery and immediate and also just make it uh, so there would be so much of it that it would choke everything up. So you need fresh water, and that fresh fresh water was a huge limit on the range of steamships. So they need to go into ports, lay into ports like in Japan, to continue their trips. Uh, to Indonesia, to Australia, to other places around the South Pacific. They tried, America tried the same thing with Korea, by the way, in um, 1871, just immediately after Japan. Korea was another isolationist empire. At that time, it was already 
about 500 years old, they called themselves Josen. And this uh, kingdom of Josen wanted to have nothing to do with any foreigners. Uh, but Americans uh, didn't take no for an answer very easily and attacked it. And of course, Koreans having matchlock muskets in 1871 and cannon, the technology that dated back to when they met up with the Portuguese in you know, the 1500s, they couldn't be a match for America. So America won that engagement. It was called the Expedition to Korea, if you want to look it up. America, of course, soundly won the uh, military side of it, but still couldn't force Korea to modernize like Japan did and open its ports. So it was um, diplomatically a failure for, a failure for America, also for Korea, which uh, by failing to, re- to recognize the need to, to modernize laid itself bare later to Japanese aggression and Japanese eventually uh, in the 1920s to Japanese occupation and the end of that Joseon Empire. Be it as it may, uh, what I want to finish this segment with is, is this idea that historical, this fact that historically America has always been very active in the protection of its trade interests. Please stay tuned. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Fighting every day against the internet monopolies that are trying to stifle our right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. back to the show my friends so in the last segment we summarized how america made a deal with the rest of the world following the second world war in which its currency would become the world's reserve currency and it would get preferential access to the world markets both in terms of buying raw resources and selling value-add goods and in return for that it would provide worldwide stability and 
security and mo most importantly uh, unfettered international trade and this was something that was natural for America because it has been waging <coughs> various military operations uh, since its very earliest days as an independent polity to procure for itself the rights for free trade. And the wars that America fought, substantially all of them, and various skirmishes and battles that cannot possibly be called wars, were all fought substantially for that reason, for the reason of free and unfettered trade and access to resources. Um, the reason that America never was interested, if, to, to say, uh, to, to put it mildly, in Germany becoming uh, a kind of a, a hegemon in Europe, in other words, in Europe succumbing to German hegemony, whether it was in the First World War or the Second, had a lot to do with trade because America wanted... Uh, did not want Germany to be able to restrict trade uh, across Europe. Something similar is happening today with the European Union, which is very much under German control. Uh, but back then, uh, uh, America certainly had no interest in Germany controlling the European market. And that was a big part in America's uh, decision to join uh, both First and Second World Wars, um, on the side against Germany. The war with Japan, uh, even though it was uh, precipitated, of course, by Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but the reason for Japanese attack on Pearl, Pearl Harbor had a lot to do with America's aggressive moves in, in the Pacific to contain any kind of Japanese encroachments on its own trade with, uh, across the Pacific and with various uh, rising entities in the Pacific, like the Philippines, um, like Australia, and, uh, and Indonesia. And so Japan, which, so there was, a, as we all know, competition for resources across the Pacific Basin, and uh, that resulted in uh, the war between the United States and Japan, the war that, of course, America soundly won. But then coming back more so to our recent history, America's wars in, uh, or so-called wars in the Middle East, uh, its engagement with the Muslim world and so on, they all have to do with, um, <coughs> excuse me, with America's, uh, with America's access to resources, especially oil, and providing the rest of the world with such access. So when Saddam Hussein um, invaded and occupied Kuwait, that was a threat to oil exportation from that country and from other countries uh, on, on the Arabian Peninsula, on, uh, on the Persian Gulf, right? And so that's why uh, George Bush, the father, um, attacked Iraq and uh, and got it out of Kuwait. Uh, George Bush, the son, uh, his adventure in Iraq could have been very ill-conceived, Ill but it came substantially as a continuation of that, of that first Gulf, so-called Gulf War. But the reason I'm mentioning all of this is that because today, 
what we see in the American political um, landscape is that uh, the people who identify themselves with um, President Trump's Make America Great movement um, often exhibit um, kind of isolationist and, in my, uh, in my opinion, ignorant opinions about what is and isn't a war. There is a common refrain in, uh, in those circles that President Trump uh, was a good president because he, quote-unquote, did not start any new wars. Well, I happen to think that President Trump was a good president, um, unfortunately. He did not manage to secure uh, the 2020 election and therefore his uh, all the good stuff that he did, um, or almost all of it, uh, is already been erased and what hasn't been erased already will be erased in the next few weeks. But beyond that, um, this idea that every uh, skirmish, that every uh, situation in which the American uh, armed forces are involved in some sort of combat or another is called a war, is a ridiculous concept that cannot be allowed to stand without challenge. No American... Uh, prior to today's generation, um, and certainly no American uh, who lived during the Second World War, or the Korean War, or the Vietnam War, would call these uh, engagements that America had in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and certainly not in Syria, wars. These are not wars. For example, the American expedition to Korea, which I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, when uh, a few, a couple of American gunboats attacked uh, a Korean port not far from Seoul and substantially demolished it, that was not a war. Nobody in America back then would call it a war. The Congress didn't. Amer- American Congress did not declare war on the Korean Kingdom of Joseon. It's, it was just, a, as this German guy, and sorry, the name eludes me now, mentioned, uh, it was a continuation of diplomacy by other means. But, uh, so, so, you know, maybe we should uh, spend a moment uh, to kind of define what war is and what war is not. Because let me tell you, not every military engagement is war. Okay. If every military engagement was war, that would be uh, just unthinkable. Uh, That would mean that, uh, for example, it would mean that pretty much the entire 19th century America was at war nonstop. And uh, it kind of devalues the concept of war, right? But the concept of war was very well known to the American founding fathers, and that's why they gave Congress the, the... exclusive right to declare it and so on and they knew what they meant by war and it was not every time a musket is fired in anger what a war is and what a war uh, should be is uh, a military engagement uh, between two um, sovereign nations that's how they would have looked at it and uh, especially when 
those sovereign nations are fairly equally matched. So how I would define a war, uh, being a scientist, I like these sufficient and necessary condition type defini definitions because they seem to work. Well, I would say that the necessary condition to have a war, and I'm excluding civil wars here, is to have a, a military confrontation between two sovereign entities. And the sufficient condition in my mind is that those sovereign entities are more or less equally matched so that the outcome of the fight, uh, of the conflict, is uh, indeed in question. So it's not a foretold certainty. So if we look at, if we apply this uh, necessary sufficient condition metric to America's engagements in the 20th century, we see that we see that uh, the first war that America fought in the 20th century that could be called a war was certainly uh, the First World War, because in it America was arrayed as part of an alliance against Germany, which was a sovereign state, and a very powerful one to boot. <clears throat> the same could be said about the Second World War in both theaters, uh, especially in the Pacific, against Japan, because by the time America joined the fight against Germany, Germany was almost beaten already by the Russians, and some by the English. Nevertheless, I would certainly call America's engagement with, the, with Nazi Germany in the 1940s, I would call that a war. Moving on to Korea. North Korea, in and of itself, even though clearing the necessary condition of being a sovereign nation, certainly could not clear the, the sufficient condition of being a match for America. And as that conflict developed, and by the way, you know, <clears throat> Eisenhower was very um, careful to never call it a war. It was called the United Nations Police Action. <clears throat> it was supposed to resist North Korea's attempt to unify the Korean Peninsula under its banner, in other words, to eliminate South Korea. Uh, and we know that the United States was extremely successful in the first stages of that conflict uh, because not only did it push the North Koreans out of South Korea, but it also chased them into their own territory of North Korea. And it was, there was a significant risk to, to the Koreans that not only would they not be able to get rid of South Korea, but the United States would get rid of them and unify the Korean Peninsula under the pro-Western, pro-American South Korean regime. And that's when things went south for America. Why? Because the fight was joined by China. So the later part of the Korean War could be called a war, but not between America and North Korea, but between America and another sovereign state, China. Now, China, at that point in time, was perhaps 
militarily not a match for America quite, in a sense of its weaponry and so on, but it had unlimited human resources and would, could sacrifice untold number of its own soldiers. So that America was faced with a dilemma, just how many Chinese soldiers pouring over the, what is it, the Yellow River or something like that, that marks the border between Korean Peninsula and China, they would be willing to kill. It was really almost as simple as that. And uh, MacArthur was willing to kill as many as it took, including with nuclear weapons, And but Eisenhower would hear none of it. He was certainly not willing to do that, so America kind of cut a de facto deal, withdrew to the demarcation line that existed in the kind of status quo ante, as they say, previously, pre before the North Koreans invaded South Korea, and that's that's where the situation is to this very day. So we can call that engagement a war because in it, in the first stages, it was more of a, as, as they say, policing action, as they said back then. But then it became a war because China, which was a match to America, joined it. Next, we come to Vietnam. In Vietnam, the situation was quite similar. North Vietnam... South Vietnam, like North Korea, South Korea. <clears throat> and again, North Vietnam in and of itself was not a match to America's might. But it was supported by the Soviets. And for example, uh, McCain's airplane was shot down by a Soviet missile operated by Russian soldiers or Soviet soldiers. So really it was not the North Vietnamese as such that fought America in Vietnam. It was the Russians or the Soviets using the South Vietnamese as a kind of proxy. And so it was a war between two sovereign nations, United States and ostensibly North Vietnam, but really Russia or the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was militarily matched to America. So that was a war. But after Vietnam, there is no military engagement that I can find that rises to that level, to the level of being called a war. Not even, the closest would be the two engagements against Iraq, the first one, uh, you know, the um, Desert Storm and then um, Operation Iraqi Freedom or whatever it was called, right? Well, there were two sovereign nations, Iraq and the United States. But let's not, so the first condition, you know, the, the um, necessary condition was met. But as, when it comes to a sufficient condition, I do not think it was met because there was no superpower, no power remotely equal to um, the United States militarily that was supportive of Iraq, right? I mean, uh, Russia was beaten already at that time and certainly did not intervene on Iraq's behalf and neither did any other power that could claim to be remotely as powerful as America. And Afghanistan is another case in question. So the 
military victory of the United States in places like Afghanistan and Iraq was never in any kind of doubt. Never. Uh, There was simply no enemy worthy of America to be fought with. Now, you know, uh, certainly diplomatically and uh, politically and economically, these engagements can be questioned. And they can be questioned from the perspective of were they worth the bloodshed on both sides? Were they worth um, the money that America spent? All of these are legitimate questions and they have various answers, but none of them uh, really makes this or elevates these these military actions to the level of war. And the reason I think that this distinction is important between war and other military actions is because a country like America that uh, relies in, in terms of its uh, internal economic um, prosperity entirely on being able to freely trade and has a deal that it has to uphold, which is that it would guarantee and secure free trade across the globe, a country like that cannot unilaterally withdraw from its agreements. And we run out of time for this segment, so please stay tuned for the next one. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So, as, as I uh, mentioned uh, previously, not every time the American military is engaged in uh, military action, including fairly massive military action like in the two Iraq wars and war in Afghanistan and so on, is literally a war. Okay, so this idea that every time, the idea that is somehow held by some on the American kind of MAGA right, that on one hand, war is a bad thing, and on the other hand, that war, that every time an American soldier fires uh, his rifle uh, in anger, that's a war. That, those are preposterous ideas. Now, of course, war is bad. I fought in a war, and so, you know, I probably know more about war than most, though there's plenty of other people who fought in wars, especially in Israel but also in America, so um, no, way sh- no way am I unique in this, but all I want to say is that I have no illusions at all about the horrors of war. And yet, 
war is a part of a human condition, always was, always will be. Anything, anybody who believes otherwise doesn't understand anything about human beings and about how we solve our disputes and about how, and, you know, I would say that in America, people who uh, believe that somehow the world can be at peace, and that's not only in America, also in the West, other countries in the West, uh, the only reason that people believe that nonsense is because they are too fat. They've had it too good for too long. They don't understand that what they have is orders of magnitude more than everybody else on the, on the face of this planet has, and that all these other people are perfectly willing to die to get some of that stuff that Americans have, okay? And Americans can have two choices, either do something about it or give it up. And the idea that America can become <clears throat> some sort of a fortress and only deploy its massive military in the defense of its own borders, it's another preposterous idea that can never ever happen. America, in a very true sense, has no borders. American, America's economic prosperity depends on the world's economic prosperity because it depends on trade. Okay? And it de not only that, but it depends on <clears throat> America's leading position in world trade. It depends on the dollar, the American dollar, retaining its status as a world reserve currency, for example. Right? It returns, uh, sorry, it depends on America's ability to secure for itself preferential access to resources that are of strategic importance, be they energy resources such as oil or other energy resources that are become, becoming important today, uh, rare earth elements, right? I mean, today, the, those rare earth elements, cadmium and so on, that are in every battery, they're the oil of the 1920s. Right? And America is already losing to China in terms of its preferential access to these rare earth elements. And just like with oil, you have to go where they are. You can't manufacture them. That's why they're called an element. You cannot manufacture an element. You can only go and get it where, where it is. Right? And where it is is in a lot of places like Africa and so on, which is where, why China is so active there. And Americans, you know, just had it too good. I mean, now Americans are clamoring for their government to give them so-called stimulus checks, whether it's $600 or $1,400 or, <coughs> excuse me, $2,000. But where from? In a normal country, normal country, every other country, you would look at the balance sheet and say, hey, hey, hey. Our liabilities far exceed our assets. Okay, we are like twenty-five trillion dollars in debt, and we're running a current a current uh, deficit, current accounts deficit, right? Which means that we're bringing in less 
far less than we're spending every single day. So we're accruing this debt as we go along. And without even talking about the virus or whatever, fine, open the economy, do whatever, right? But that still doesn't wipe, wipe that debt, debt clean. And President Trump didn't do anything to reduce the debt. On the contrary, increased it. President Trump didn't do anything to shrink the ridiculous size of American government. On the contrary, increased it. I mean, the, the only reason that America can afford all these things, can afford its runaway government, its uh, runaway entitlements, including the stimulus checks and all of that, the only reason America can afford all of that is because of that deal that was done in 1945 in which America promised to keep the world, to keep the peace globally and to deploy its military when needed in, in the defense of that global peace and global trade security. And in exchange for uh, this policing action, America got its dollar to be the king of all currencies substantially and to take kind of the cream off the top of all the world trade. And that's what made America so enormously prosperous. I mean, if you look at the gross domestic product today, the gross domestic product in America is on the order of 50% higher than in other highly industrialized countries. So, you know, in rough numbers, America, you're talking about $60,000 per capita. And in highly industrialized countries like Japan, it's 40. Japan, Israel, a bunch of European countries in that 40 range. U.S. 60. And it's not because Americans are more industrious. It's because uh, America has this preferential place. And by the way, that preferential place is what Americans died for. The Americans who fought in every war, but also in every not war. You know, we say they fought for freedom. No, no, they didn't fight for freedom. They fought for money, but that's no less important. You know, people say, well, you know, there's a lot of that talk where you say, <clears throat> well, fighting for our freedoms, that's righteous, right? But fighting for the dollar that's or for oil that's bad. That's not righteous. And I say, wake up. Enough with this nonsense. Americans haven't fought for their quote-unquote freedom since 1781. And even then, that rebellion was substantially uh, precipitated by economic concerns that whole issue of being taxed and taxed pretty heavily without having a say in it. But let's set that aside and let's say that, okay, that war was in the cause of freedom. Well, every other war since then and every other non-war was fought for economy, including the civil war. It was fought for the dollar. But that's okay, because the dollar is very, very important. 
the American way of life, the American prosperity, the American ability to manufacture unlimited quantities of money without suffering the uh, penalties of inflation, of higher interest rates, of credit <coughs> erosion, is all guaranteed only at the end of Americans' virtual bayonets, or tomahawk missiles, or aircraft carriers, or killer drones, or wh whatever piece of weaponry you want to put in there, right? But you get my point. All of America's wars and all of America's minor and major military engagements <clears throat> were fought for money. I mean, if you look at uh, something like Afghanistan, <clears throat> sure, America had to eliminate a threat uh, that, that emanated from radical Islam. Right? But what was this whole thing about radical Islam? That was Muslims around the world who did not love, to put it mildly, that together with America's economic reach, which they didn't mind, came America's cultural reach. In other words, it started with jeans and rock and roll and uh, women's lib and sexual revolutions and now continues through uh, the, the various uh, gay flags and uh, transgenderism. And there's a lot of people around the world who don't love it. And there's a lot of people who do love it. But some people don't love it violently enough to start attacking America, and that's what happened with Muslims. <clears throat> so America had to retali retaliate and get rid of Al-Qaeda's base in Afghanistan, right? <clears throat> but that was done in a matter of uh, a month or something like that, right? Why is America still there? <coughs> well, America is still there because... If America pulled out of there, uh, like President Trump wanted to do, it could very well be that Afghanistan would become a threat to worldwide trade. It has a strategic position, which is not from today. I mean, even the, even the Brits in 19th century recognized it as, as strategic. And from that base, it can be quite disruptive to world trade and world peace. And it is America's job under its the contract that it signed with the rest of the world to take the lead in that fight of maintaining global security. Now, my friends, you may say, well, we don't want that deal anymore. That's fine. But like with every other deal... There is a price to pay. You cannot just back out of the deal and say, I don't want to pay. I don't want to keep undertaking or my obligation. I don't want to keep discharging my duties. But you, the other party to the contract, should still keep uh, your obligations. They should still keep discharging your duties towards me. It doesn't work that way, does it? If you stop paying rent, you typically get evicted. 
If you stop paying mortgage, the bank will take your house away, right? So America, if it decides that it wants to be isolationist and not deploy its military uh, in, in support of world stability and stop being the guarantor of world peace, well, then that's fine. In fact, maybe today um, there is a power that could take that role, and that power is China. I don't think they're ready yet. I don't think they have a sufficiently large navy, <clears throat> and I don't think an, an air force, and I don't think they have enough uh, friendly ports around the world and things of that nature. That all of that infrastructure that America paid for with its blood and treasure. And it seems to me, however, that many Americans on uh, the so-called MAGA side want to just give it up. All of these ports of call that Americans' navies can go to and in, on friendly terms, from Haifa, Israel, to, to Italy, to Yokohama, Japan, and in many other places, were won with Americans with America's blood and treasure over 200 years. So over two centuries, America spent the blood of its sons and daughters, mostly sons, I would say, and its treasure to secure to, for itself, to procure for itself and for its future generations, this enormous global infrastructure that nobody, no other country has in the world um, to play that role of a global policeman. Well, now some Americans are saying, well, you know, every time an American soldier fires his rifle at somebody, that's a war, we don't want wars, and we're out. Fine. Then you give up on all of that stuff uh, that, that you procured, your ancestors procured for you, and you basically leave the playground, you take your toys and you leave. But guess what happens then? Somebody else come, comes along. There will be no vacuum. China will take this, America's place as the guarantor of global stability. And they say they're ready. But what it will mean for America and for every American is a massive, massive drop in prosperity. Because China will not do it for free. Why should it? If America wants to stop policing the world, it will stop collecting the dues that come with policing, policing the world. If America stops being the guarantor of world peace and security, it will have to forego the preferred status that the world has allowed it to keep since World War II. And it is that preferred status that is underpinning every economic benefit that Americans are enjoying today. Every single one. And if China is allowed to, or is asked to, fill 
the void that is left behind by America pursuing this no-war policy, China will collect a price that is probably higher than what America has collected, and it will collect it from whom? Well, guess what? It would collect it from America, because that's where most stuff is. It will be Americans who will disproportionately, just like Americans disproportionately benefited from being militarily strong, it will be Americans who will disproportionately pay and suffer for reneging on their, oblig on their military obligations around the globe. So this part of uh, mega kind of no war policy is the opposite of freedom. I hope that America does not pursue it. Join me next time. Choose to be free.